Hi, I'm uh, Keith Wilson. I'm a partner in the CMS finance team specialising in aircraft finance. And uh, today we have our first short podcast on the important subject of governing law and jurisdiction. And I'm joined by my partner, Kushal Gandhi, who's a partner in the CMS finance disputes team and specialises in finance and fintech uh, dispute resolution. The the particular subject we wanted to talk about today is um, governing law and jurisdiction, specifically in relation to aircraft leasing and specifically in the context of Brexit having occurred. Uh, Now, Kushal, as you know, we've worked together on disputes previously. Um, English law and indeed New York law are very widely used um, in aircraft leases. Do you think that Brexit is going to threaten the use of English law and the use of the English courts um, going forward? Thanks, Keith. Um, I I don't see any reason why it should, because the fundamentals of why people chose English law are not changing. It's a a very uh, precise system. uh, There is clarity in terms of parties' rights and obligations, and it's very certain. And English language is is widely used across the world and in the English courts. So none of those reasons have changed. Um, as far as the English courts are concerned, again, some of the fundamental reasons as to why parties preferred to come to the English courts to have their disputes resolved haven't changed. You know, the English courts have a pedigree of judiciary. There's independence. Um, there's very good um, legal service providers in, in the UK. So from all of those perspectives, um, nothing has changed. I suppose the one thing which we'll come on to discuss is is a big question on enforcement of uh, of of English court judgments that some people may have questions about. Possibly jumping a little bit ahead yet because we'll we'll get to that in a second. But I mean I think the the point that you make that uh, English um, law language is understood in the courts is is a, an important one that. Uh, there needs to be a common legal language across leases to some extent because it's really impossible for a leasing company to understand the laws and the complexity and the different languages in each of the countries in which it will be leasing aircraft. Uh, An English language and English law has been one of the common language currencies. Um, So uh, that that has has certainly played a significant part. Now, we've got a lot of talk just now about uh, different treaties. I think this arises because of of Brexit. Um, So we have talk of of Brussels, we have talk of the Hague Convention, and we have uh, talk about the Gano. Why are we suddenly talking about treaties in a way that we weren't previously? Maybe I'll start off with, with, with what these treaties cover or why, or why they've gained significance. Um, the, the Brussels is, is, is a reference to the Brussels regulation, um, and the, the other one is the Lugano Convention, and there is the Hague Convention. Those three, I think, um, form a trinity uh, in, in any topical discussion on jurisdiction and governing law these days. And that's because these uh, regulations slash international conventions cover the very important question of recognition and enforcement of English court jurisdictions in places other than England. And now that can be quite important, uh, particularly, obviously, in the context of um, aircraft leasing and aircraft financing, where assets might be situated not just in England, but in other jurisdictions. What has happened uh, over the years is that between EU member states, there has been 
a sort of simplified framework for the recognition and enforcement of court jurisdictions uh, that come out of each of the courts of the member states. Now, obviously, England has been a party to that, and therefore English court judgments have been easily passported across the EU and vice versa under what's known as the Brussels regime. The Lugano Convention is, is quite similar to that, um, and the main difference being that it applies between EU and EFTA countries. And the Hague Convention, which is the sort of new kid on the block in some respects, although it's dated from 2005, um, is, applies between EU member states and the other signatories. And the other signatories are Mexico, Singapore, Montenegro, and now importantly, the UK. And what the Hague Convention provides is a framework for the recognition and enforcement of judgments of contracting states. But there is a big caveat, which is that it only comes into play where the dispute on which judgment is given arises out of an exclusive court agreement. And the court giving the judgment is the one that was chosen by the parties in their exclusive court agreement. So the changes that have taken place really has seen um, the UK no longer party to these arrangements under Brussels and at currently I think Lugano, although we, I think the UK has an application in to join Lugano and I see Switzerland are the first to, to say yes, but not clear yet whether others will do so too. So we no longer have that reciprocity across uh, the EU and, and EFTA at this moment, but we do have the Hague Convention to look at. Now, you're talking about uh, jurisdiction clauses, and I think that a typical jurisdiction clause in, in an aircraft lease, um, and, and leaving aside lease that uh, deals with arbitration, we might come back to that in a minute, but uh, just in a typical court uh, uh, um, enforcement uh, clause, you would uh, have, I would guess, um, a mutual and exclusive submission to jurisdiction of the English courts. But there would be a tag along at the end that allows the lessor to then take action in any other court. And generally speaking, I think up till now, there hasn't been any qualification to that. So if you like, it has, be it has been an asymmetrical situation. It starts with the supposition that most disputes would end up in the UK courts. And what I've been asked to justify this by um, lessees when I've been negotiating for a lessor, um, I've been able to point to examples of, of reasons such as you might want to go and repossess the aircraft in a country that isn't the UK and therefore taking court action in that country would be a way of achieving that enforcement and, and generally been able to, to win an argument that maintains the exclusivity of that right to um, the, the lessor. Now, do you think that passes muster under um, the, the Hague Convention as, as it stands? I think that might well be uh, a multi-million dollar question uh, in, in, in a real life scenario. Um, but look, I think um, there, is a, there is some uncertainty around asymmetrical clauses and whether or not they will be considered to be exclusive jurisdiction clauses for the purposes of the Hague Convention. And, that, and that's, you know, the, the theory behind that is that a, an, ex, a, an asymmetrical clause could be deemed to be non-exclusive vis-a-vis one party. And therefore, if you look at the, the wording in the Hague Convention of what amounts to an exclusive jurisdiction clause, it may well be said that that is not good enough 
for it to fall within the Hague Convention. I don't think uh, there is currently any English authority on this point, other than perhaps some orbital comments that were made in a recent case, yeah. um, where where I think uh, 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 the court, in, in, this was in the context of the Brussels recast, where the court actually said that an asymmetrical clause was exclusive for the purposes of the Brussels recast regulation, but but noted that there might be arguments that it may not be exclusive for the purposes of the Hague Convention. Now, I think all of that we need to read it quite carefully. I think there were very there were obvious comments. It was not something the court was being asked to decide on, but that is perhaps an indication of of the level of difficulty that this this issue will have the first time it reaches court. And no doubt, arguments will be made that it's not exclusive, but particularly by the party that is resisting proceedings and doesn't want the judgment to be easily portable under the Hague Convention for enforcement purposes. And do you think that if we had greater separation, so that we had a, 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 a symmetrical clause, submission to jurisdiction, and then an entirely separate clause that uh, allowed the lessor additional rights, but restrained the circumstances in which those rights would arise. So repossession of the aircraft, a, a, an action to safeguard the aircraft um, if it had been abandoned, um, uh, possibly in relation to maintenance, possibly in relation to removal of obliens. Um, you know, all situations where if the lessor doesn't take action, clearly there's going to be a loss, but clearly a loss that might actually flow through to the lessee as well as the uh, as the person in possession of the aircraft at the, the time, at least in legal possession of the aircraft at the time. Do you think that separation is still, you know, if you put these into two different clauses, you restrict the, the, the reasoning, do you think we're still vulnerable to, to being excluded under the Hague Convention? Uh, the honest answer, Keith, I think, is, is difficult to be definitive un, 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 until this gets tested in the courts. But having said that, the scenario you've described, I think, you know, stands a good chance of being argued to be to fall within the Hague. And that's because I think effectively what you're saying is that the parties have agreed to have a symmetrical exclusive jurisdiction clause, which is, the, let's say, English courts. But for the purposes of interim measures, i.e. to seek to sort of, you know, make sure the, the aircraft doesn't leave a particular jurisdiction, whilst the English court is determining the rights and wrongs of the situation, it, you know, they're, they're trying to sort of effectively protect the position such that an English court order that is made can then actually be enforced, um, which is, you know, not dissimilar to, for example, seeking a freezing order. Uh, to to free someone's bank account whilst the English court is determining the dispute. Something like that. You could say that actually that is still an exclusive jurisdiction clause. Um, and in circumstances where the Hague Convention actually excludes from its scope interim remedies and interim measures, one might argue that if if a clause allows you to step outside the bounds of English court jurisdiction for a limited purpose of seeking interim measures, which is not covered by the Hague Convention in any event, then that clause ought to be treated as exclusive for the purposes of the Hague Convention. Now, I think it will depend on how the clause is worded, but equally, you know, I would suggest that careful consideration is given as to whether the carve-out itself for interim measures is made 
asymmetrical or whether it's allowed to exist for the benefit of both parties and, 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 and there is parity because that, that could potentially help as well to have symmetry in, in that regard as well. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think that the concern has always been opening the door to a dispute in the local court of the, the lessee, um, which may not have the same degree of independence uh, or history of um, uh, judicial thinking that uh, the UK has had. Of course, it may do. It may do. I'm, I'm not um, for a minute uh, thinking the UK has an exclusive right to to um, judicial decisions. Um, but that's always been the, the worry down that track. But perhaps if the limitation is very clear and it is things that really only apply to the lessor, perhaps that makes it uh, easier to um, to accomplish. Should we touch briefly on, on arbitration here? Because mm-hmm. there's another treaty, isn't there? There's the New York Treaty of 1958, um, which uh, always appeals to, to us aircraft financiers because it's very widely adopted. Um, and uh, deals with reciprocal enforcement. So whilst we're talking about conventions here that deal with 27 countries or rather more with EFTA or rather more with the Hague Convention, we're still nowhere near the universe of places that aircraft get leased. But on the other hand, the New York Convention is very widely adopted um, and uh, reciprocal uh, enforcement of arbitral awards is possible under that. I guess the primary place that we see um, aircraft disputes at present, particularly given what's happened uh, with COVID, um, is is non-payment and a pretty clear cut uh, non-payment situations and lessees looking reluctant to continue to lease an aircraft. So the lessor is having to try and enforce payment and possibly repossess, um, which to, to me, that the idea of arbitration, where two parties are putting forward their case and the, and the man in the middle or the three arbiters in the middle kind of work with that and decide what is the best solution out of it, doesn't really lend itself to that situation. Is, is that right? <laughs> um, look, I, I, from an English law perspective, an English procedural court perspective, I think where you've got a clear-cut agreement, as you say, for, for payment, and there is basically no grounds to dispute it, in a, in a typical English court situation, what you might try to do is you might try to go for summary judgment, which is which is a, a lot quicker form of getting a remedy. You get an English court order saying, well, this money is due and payable and there's interest running on it. You then take that English court judgment across the relevant parts of the world and enforce it wherever the assets are. Now, traditionally in arbitration, that it, it may not have been as quick to get that because 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 of the nature of arbitration, which is a which is like a private dispute resolution forum. Um, and the fact that arbitrators are, are subject to challenge if they haven't given parties a fair opportunity to present their case, for example. Um, trying to shortcut the procedure in that way may have been seen as problematic before. But what's happening now is that you know a lot of arbitration procedure is being modernized. So, for example, the LCIA rules, which have been updated recently, include a provision which allows the tribunal to, to get to an expedited decision effectively by, by cutting short the timescales and, and the procedure that needs to be followed. So you don't always have to go through the rigmarole um, of, of a full-blown arbitration before you can get an award which says, well, money is due and payable and there's absolutely no, no, no dispute. So that is now possible in an arbitration. How far it's going to get used, you know, I think is is still a big question. I suspect what is going to happen is there will still be some arbitrators who will be sensitive about taking too many shortcuts. Um, but equally, there will be this push and pull 
between the claimants wanting to do it and the respondents trying to threaten arbitrators with challenges. But having said that, you know, there are arbitrators who are quite robust in their views about these things. So arbitration may well be a, a, a perfect solution in some respects, because as you say, you benefit from the New York Convention, which I think about over 160 countries are signed up to. If you can get a quick decision out of the arbitrators when it's absolutely clear cut that there is no defense, then I don't see any reason why that would not be an attractive proposition. My only caution would be that, in fact, there was a recent English court decision that came out where there was an arbitration agreement uh, in, in the lease. The claim was, was for unpaid rent. Um, I think the party that was claiming the money decided that they could go to court instead because there was, there was a carve-out from the arbitration to go to court in limited circumstances. But the, in that situation, the High Court actually said that on the drafting of that clause, um, the, the party seeking the payment did have to go to arbitration to claim the unpaid rent. And the carve-out for going to court wasn't wide enough in order, in order to be able to sort of just not go to arbitration. So where you are agreeing to an arbitration clause, and you still want the option of going to court where you feel that it might be more straightforward, what I suggest is that the drafting is done carefully and, and you make sure that the carve-out is wide and the arbitration agreement, for example, is made subject to that carve-out. Yeah, I think that was specifically highlighted in the case, wasn't it, that the, uh, um, the, 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 uh, the court jurisdiction um, was not sort of carved out from the arbitration clearly, so it wasn't clear whether there was a conflict in the document or, or not. Um, and even that against a, a background where there didn't seem to be any dispute about the non-payment of, of rental over a period of time, so that you would have thought that natural justice, if there is such a thing, would have driven the court to say, this doesn't matter too much, you haven't paid, you ought to pay, but it, it didn't. And I guess the uh, um, parties there would have uh, commenced again as an arbitration shortly after that, uh, one, one assumes. Um, that's very, very helpful, um, Kushal. I think probably we need to round up. So uh, I'm taking out of this that uh, Lugana is still a work in progress. We might get there, we might not, which would be helpful on reciprocity. Jurisdiction clauses, we need to look at what we draft now and maybe amend them to some extent. The greater the um, exclusivity that we achieve, the, the, the greater the um, chances of it being Hague compatible, shall we say. And we really look, ought to be looking afresh at arbitration as a, a possible um, uh, way of, of resolving disputes. But finally, no reason to move away from English law. And ultimately, whether that's um, English law with arbitration or English law with the English courts, still a good system of law to use on aircraft leasing transactions. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for having me.